Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Good morning on this, uh, another Oh, I guess COVID semi-quarantine time. Uh, but anyway, we're all here and we're all going to learn. I have today with me Mark Farron. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? Really good. Mark, you are uh, calling in from New Jersey, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So we're coast-to-coast uh, coast here, New, New Jersey to California with our... Uh, Great studio in the middle in Arizona. <laughs> so this is a, a little coastal event here. So, um, so Mark, um, I was really interested in an article you wrote. Um, it was actually a white paper for your certified legal investigator called Lowering the Burden of Proof. So we're going to talk about that today. I'm excited. Mm. But, uh, me first, too. You know, can you tell it? I'm sorry, what? I said me too. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so um, you're a former police officer, correct? Yes. Okay, and what was where was that at? So I, I served for uh, two small municipalities in, in New Jersey. Uh, when I say small, I mean the department itself is small, but, you know, they were like 25, 30 square miles, um, you know, uh, relatively low uh, residential level. Um, so a large area, smaller population. Yeah, so we had two guys working per shift uh, to cover, you know, 30 square miles. Wow. That's a, that's a lot to cover for two people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, sometimes getting from one end of town to the other, uh, you know, could take 15 minutes, you know. Uh, depending on the yeah. time of day and all that stuff. So, you know. So how long did you spend at the department? So between the two of them, uh, I did a total of four years, um, which uh, was enough for me. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and I, I, there was a lot that, that we did as patrolmen that, that – um, you don't necessarily get to do in other towns. Like, uh, so if, you know, like I said, there's two guys per shift. So, um, whatever call came in, you handled it. Like whether you alternated calls or you split the town in half and said, Hey, this shift, anything on this side of town, you're going to write the report for anything on this side. I'll handle the report for, um, so, you know, whether it's, you know, domestic dispute or, you know, aggravated assault, if that was your report, that's your case from the day it happens until it gets disposed of in court. So we didn't have a detective bureau, so it was kind of a trial by fire. Um, you know, a lot of the older guys are all burnt out. Um, they're just like, well, whatever, handle it, you know. 
So you had to kind of mm. figure out the whole investigative process on your own. Um, you know, what am I going to do? What steps am I going to take? And, and with my second department, I had a, a really good chief. Um, I, you know, I still use some of the, a lot of the stuff he taught me to this day. Um, and, you know, he understood. Like, hey, you, you know, you're a patrolman. Uh, but he wanted us to get the experience of seeing things through, and instead of giving us the answers, he was like, he helped us work through it, you know? So. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So you're, on your bio, Mark, you say you became disillusioned with law enforcement, uh, with that world. So what was the disillusionment part? <laughs> so... It's, uh, you know, they, they always tell you, you know, you don't want to see how the sausage is made, right? You know, and, and for the longest time I, I held, uh, and I still do, I, I hold law enforcement in high regard. Uh, you know, it's a tough job, and, and it's like, man, you know, you got the epitome of, of integrity and, and uh, all the core values in, the, in this job, and then, you know, you start to, to do the job and, and you realize it's, it's not really what it is. You know, um, it's at the end of the day, it's just another job. Right. And there's, uh, there's guys who, um, just like any other career field where, you know, they just put in their time, they lay low, they don't, they don't really enforce some things, but they'll, they'll be heavy Mm -hmm. on enforcing others. And, you know, whenever you're in that inner circle and you and you hear the private conversations about what goes on, and and then you, you see exactly what goes on behind the scenes, you, you know, you're like, what? Well, there's a disparity in, in fairness. There's some injustice here, and and ninety five, I would say ninety nine percent of the police officers I encountered. Um, would never violate anybody's constitutional rights intentionally and, and do it on a continual basis. But when you see there's that, that 1% where mm-hmm. guys get away with everything or, or, you know, <clears throat> doing some shady things or um, knowing how to work the system in order to get some stats, it, you know, it's like, wow. So if this happens, you know, if, even if one guy does it and it only happens five times a year, say, over the course of 25 years, how many lives is that impacted? You know, because they, yeah. the, the, the cards are, are stacked in the favor of the prosecution, you know? So um, you see that and you're like, so true. well, you know, I got into this career field uh, because... I, I was a proponent of justice, you know. Um, I, I think everything should be fair and and balanced and equal. And then <clears throat> when you're on the side that that has the heavy hand, you really see, you, if you look over to the other side that, that has the disparity, you're like, well, that's where the injustice really is. That, that's where the true justice seeking is. That, and that's where I want it to be, you know, on the on mm-hmm. the other side of it. Hmm. Do you think it was that was more um, consistent with a small department than it would have been with a larger department, or or what do you think about that? 
No, uh, well, you know, every department is different. Every department has their own culture. So you'll have some big city departments where, um, you know, there's very little, um, say, corruption or or um, shady dealings or, or you know, um, ways that they affect arrests and, and how they get their numbers. But then other big city departments... Uh, it runs rampant, you know, there's, you know, tons of FBI cases that, that look into these departments that, that have just widespread corruption. So it's not necessarily the size of the department. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say it's the culture of the area and uh, the, the culture of the people uh, that you hire, like the, the, the culture you create within the department. So it's big or small, doesn't matter. It all comes down to, how is the department being ran? Who, who's at the helm and what example does he set? And, um, or he or she, I should say, I'm sorry. Um, what example does the leadership set? And, and, and that, that's how it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter, big or small, really. So what I kind of hear you saying is that a few bad apples spoil the culture. 100%, because you've got to remember that the thin blue line is real. So, so once you're in that environment, you know a lot of a lot of police officers, uh, the majority of them, you know, they don't just take the job to have a job, right? It's something they aspire to, mm-hmm. something, something they work hard for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they got to jump through all the hoops. They got to, you know, they have to have all their ducks in line in order to get into even the smallest department, let alone a, a big organization like, say, the FBI. Or, or a big city department. So once you're in there, you don't want to do anything to to jeopardize your your position. And, and some people justify it by by saying, um, "Well, you know, I gotta just keep my head low, let them do what they want. That's on them. And then when I get into a position where I can change it, I'm gonna change it. But you know, over the course of the years, the more you keep silent." you know, uh, the more it perpetuates and, and it becomes a problem you, you can't fix. You know, so a couple of bad apples does spoil it because, like I said, if the leadership, the sergeants, the lieutenants, captains, whatever, um, if they're telling their guys, hey, the easy way to do this is this, and, and they just fall in line with that, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it just it spoils everything, you know. So people who keep, and people don't want to speak up. You know, because they don't want to face the retribution from their fellow officers, and you know, um, yeah. So, yeah, a couple of bad so, apples could. So, Mark, was there was there was there one incident for you that said, "No, I can't do this anymore," or was it a just cumulative? Uh, yeah, just, just cumulative. There was, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed the investigating aspect of law enforcement like like that's that's what Mm -hmm. really got my goat like looking into things and you know finding out um you know going down a trail and even if it doesn't lead to anything you know it's just the 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 steps you have to take figuring out what you have to do to get that information and if it comes back and not in your favor then you know it is what it is but it's just it's the, the thrill of the chase with the investigation you know um and that that's what I always loved. 
but that was only, you know, in small towns, it's only like, you know, maybe 5% of what you do. And, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> that's true. How, how, about how big were the, these communities? Oof. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't have numbers, like population numbers off the top of my head. And, and one of the towns, and their population is kind of skewed because there were two state prisons in the town, and all the inmates counted towards their total population. Uh, oh wow! So yeah, so I mean, it was it was largely rural. You know, I mean, no big. Shopping centers, no, you know, it's just mostly farms and residential, you know. So, you know, there, there wasn't there wasn't a lot going on. Uh, but then, so it was a it was a company uh, town. It was a company. It was like a company town. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just you know, a lot, a lot, just a lot of families. Some some uh, small businesses, but you know, you know, n- nothing big. You know, and then you know, mm-hmm. if if some guy had a if one of the other officers had a case um, and and you're like, oh man, you, you know, I get all excited. You could do this, this, and this. No, no, we're never gonna, we're never gonna get that. I'm just not gonna do it. And you know, there's nothing you could do. You know, so there's uh, like the whole disillusionment of like, you know, maybe because I didn't see everybody have the same drive that I did, and I get it. I understand. Like I said, at the end of the day, it's just a job. You know, um, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. you get burnt out. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, I, I didn't feel that, you know, overall, I was like, man, and, and even when I got into law enforcement, I was like, I'm not going to be a patrolman for 25 years. You know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to, you know, my, my goal was always to go somewhere else, whether it was to the prosecutor's office or, you know, uh, working for the state somehow. And I, and I didn't necessarily care if I was, uh, a, you know, a law enforcement officer, um, you know, when I left, you know, it was like, I always thought it would be something in, in law enforcement, but, you know, with a traditional idea of a law enforcement carrying a gun, wearing a badge, affecting arrest, that's not necessarily what drove me, you know. Um, so I always had it in my head. I wasn't going to stay in a department, you know. So, you know, so the, the like- old disillusionment. Good. It sounds like you really wanted to be a police officer, and and so was it a difficult decision decide to to decide to leave? Um, s- somewhat, um, but not really because I had options. So <clears throat> I could always in New Jersey once you get your certification, um, you would. Well, it's good for three years uh, from the last day you work. So, so I went alternate route, uh, which is you put yourself that you got to apply to the academy itself. You know, a lot of guys that get hired on the civil service list, uh, and I keep saying guys, and you know, uh, guys and girls. You know, that's okay. Um, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. So uh, it, you know, they'll get hired. They'll get hired, and then the, their department will pay for them to go to the academy and buy all this stuff. And, so, but then there's alternate route where you apply to the academy itself, and say the academy has a uh, hundred slots and only ninety five are filled. Well, they could pick five people who are willing to pay their own way and come out certified, uh, and then try to find employment, which is which is what I did. So, you know, there was uh, I think two hundred people 
um, for the two classes for that year who applied for alternate route. And I think there were maybe 10 slots, um, hmm. 10 or 15 slots for both classes. And, you know, I, I got picked as one of the people. So, uh, you know, I went through and then I had to, you know, find a department to hire me and all that stuff. But if I didn't get a department to hire me, that certification is good for three years. Same thing. So no matter how long you work, um, as a, as a police officer, from the last day you work, you have three years to get hired by another department or your certification expires. So oh, wow. I had that as kind of like a, a backup. So I was like, hey, man, I could, I could leave for two years, uh, try to go do something else. Um, and with only four years' experience, you're not going to get, get into a prosecutor's office. You're not going to work for the AG, you know, I mean, unless you're somebody's kid or, you know, super special talent, you know. Um, under very rare circumstances does that happen. So um, that option was out. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, and I, I was just, re- I reached a point where, you know, I was, uh, I was like, I, I think I'd be more happier uh, with taking a break. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at that time, so, it was a little bit of a difficult decision, but not much because I always knew I could come back. Um, I but see. It yeah, out well, that makes after it getting, a huge different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so after getting a taste so of the private then, side, I, I didn't want to. <laughs> okay, so then what ha- I mean, how did you get started in, because uh, it looks like you specialize in criminal defense. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. So how did so, you get from... The prosecution end to the defense end. <laughs> uh, very slowly, uh, you know, because um, any any criminal defense lawyer worth their weight isn't just gonna, um, you know, pick any investigator. At, at least for any case of consequence, um, uh, who has no criminal defense experience and. Um, a lot on the private side. A lot of um, even insurance companies and it's, uh, and attorneys are wary of prior law enforcement because they're like, well, we don't know what bad habits this person has picked up during their career. Mm. You know, so it, Good it's point. a different. Yeah, it, it's it's a different way of doing the same job, right? So, like, um, not everything translates. So. No matter what you're doing, 85% of investigating is a state, right? Whether you're a police officer, whether you're an arson investigator for the fire department, whether you're an insurance investigator, 85% of it we, is all the same. You, you use the same research methods and, um, you know, uh, methods to obtain information and actionable intelligence. Uh, the only 15% that changes is depending on what you're doing, you know? So um, 85% of the work can be done by a retired police officer if he moves over into insurance, right? But it's that 15% of that specialty of the overall investigation that really makes the difference, you know? So, um, you know, attorneys want to see where you got your teeth cut and, you know, what kind of cases you've worked in the past. So, uh, it's a it's a slow process, you know. And unless you get hired for, 
you know, I, I know a guy uh, through an alley, uh, Tom Bailey, who he was hired by Diane Cohen um, relatively early on, and he learned criminal defense from, from day one. I mean, he wasn't doing the big cases, but, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there, there, was a, there was a base there and, and, a, and a shepherding, you know, so... Um, and then, you know, difference. so he had, he had some work product and experience to, to, to help him through it. You know, me, I had no criminal defense <laughs> experience whatsoever. Uh, you know, so I did what I could, you know, I got, I got hired. Uh, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. This is, this is fascinating. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, a buddy of mine, um, Worked for a large investigating firm nationwide. They do not nationwide isn't the name of the firm, but it, you know they did. Uh, they employed people all throughout the nation. They they serve as the SIU, the Special Investigative Unit for insurance companies. So instead of insurance mm-hmm. companies having their own SIU, which are required to have some sort of SIU, they just contract out this large investigative firm to handle all their SIU stuff. So. It, for a couple of years, he was like, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come over? Why don't you try it out? Why don't you try it out? And, you know, at that time, I didn't want to hear anything other that didn't have to do with law enforcement. So it kind of blew him off. But, you know, yeah. sitting out <laughs> <laughs> sitting out in the, in the farm fields running radar at, you know, 2 in the morning, just mulling, you know, you have n- nothing to do but time to think. And, you know, that was always in the back of my head. I was like, well, what if I try this? What, are, what if I try this? So uh, I took him up on his offer. He, he, I had to wait until they, they were hiring. But, you know, uh, when they eventually did hire, um, I was one of the, the people selected. So I started out um, in insurance. And I was like, all right, let me, let me learn the, the private side, how to do things, you know. So, um that's where I got my start, and uh, I was always looking for a way to migrate over to criminal defense, but uh, I had to learn the industry first, you know? So. Yeah, well, that sounds like great experience. We're going to take a quick break, Mark, and so we'll talk more when we come back about the criminal defense end. All right, sounds good. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Mark Barron. He is a certified legal investigator, which is a great designation that is um, um, part of the National Association of Legal Investigators Certification Program. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. We've talked about CLIs on other programs. Um, Part of the process is before you even can sit for the test, which is an all-day test, very extremely daunting, right, Mark? Uh, unbelievably yeah. daunting. Yeah. More, more than I expected. <laughs> right, exactly. But one of the requirements before you even get to that point is to is to prepare and submit a white paper, which by itself is a, quite a process. So your white paper, Mark, you called it Lowering the Burden of Proof, Acts of Malice, or Other Base Motives. So Tell us about that and tell us how, because I, I know what is involved in doing a white paper. How did you use, how did you get to this subject and how did that plug in to what you were already going through with criminal defense and trying to get into that business? So uh, around the time I was, uh, so I broke off from, from the, the large investigative firms. I got my own license and, and, and was doing my own thing. And um, I, I just felt alone. You, you know, I was like, you know, there, there's all this, um, you know, I'm, I'm only one guy, you know, and, and going up against uh, the state, <laughs> at that time I only did, did state, um, uh, you know, the first degree, second degree, third degree, fourth degree charges. Um, uh, you know, I, I was like, how are, how are there not more people that, that find what, what's happening is just ridiculous. How come, how come there's not, you know, so I started looking at books, you know, I was like, oh, let, let, let's see who's out there. I, I found uh, Kitty Haley's book and um, uh, on ethics. And then I know she had CLI okay, behind her name. Go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about Kitty for a second because, you know, a lot of people oh, would know amazing? who she is. She's amazing. Kitty Haley is an investigator. Uh, senior investigator, I would say, Ex- uh, extraordinary investigation, <laughs> extraordinary investigation, investigator from from uh, Pennsylvania. I've got that right, right, Pennsylvania. Yep, yep, yep. She's from Philly. Yep. Yeah, and yep, and she's written 
two, maybe three books now on private investigators and ethics. So when we talk about Kelly Kelly, we do it with great, with great respect. So go ahead, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I noticed she had, uh, you know, CLI behind her name and, and I was, I was looking at other books. Uh, I came across Rory McMahon's book and, and that was a CLI. So I reached out to both of them and, and, uh, you know, I, well, I researched them, obviously, and I'm like, wow, there, there's more people out there who think like me, you know, uh, about about the, the criminal defense side of things. They're, they're heavily involved in, in, in criminal um, criminal defense as well. So um, it just so happened that that year, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going through all this stuff with, with, with the Camden Prosecutor's Office in, in New Jersey. I've seen all, the, all these cases that are going on, and... Uh, the Nally National Conference was in uh, Philadelphia that year. They're, they're like, hey, you know, okay. the research Nally found out about the CLI, and and it, it was in Philly. It's, it's right in my backyard. It's 45 minutes away. It's it's like it's literally the next town over from Camden, where I'm at every day. Um, and uh, so you know, I, I called up Kitty, and um, she met with me in a coffee shop, and. Uh, and Philly and explain to me, you know, find out what I wanted to do with Nally and, and why I wanted to be there. And I was explaining to her what I was doing and, and, and my thoughts on everything. And she's like, you'll be a good fit. <laughs> so I, yeah. I was like, all right, yeah. I'll apply. And, and, you know, so that's how I got started Nally. But when the requirement for the white paper, you know, um, what do you want to write? You know, she's like, you know, Whatever, whatever you want to write about, write about. There's that's we just require the Nally just requires a white paper. So at the time, I was uh, deep into um, cases in Camden, guns, drugs, murder. You know the the three big pillars. But you know whether the person did it or not, just the just the sheer contrast of. Of the what's available to the prosecution versus what's available to the defense just just blew my mind, and I'm like, you know, the, it, there's no equality here. There's no equality in the battle, you know. There's, um, and I. So, you, so you're talking about guess, Mark. You're talking about the resource, the resources that are available to the prosecution versus the, the defense. Is that what you're saying? Just. It's just uh, everything, you know, like uh, some, something as simple as, um, you know, getting in, in information uh, or um, or say our clients in, in, in jail, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We can't, we can't take, it's something as simple as taking a computer in to the jail with us to type our notes or to do research as we're talking to the client. Um, There's such a hindrance to the investigation. It's it's like, uh, you know, the equality isn't giving, uh, you know, so I saw this, this court, this uh, cartoon, you know, uh, drawing, you know, um, like a political cartoon almost. And um, it was like, it was three people watching a baseball game behind a fence. Um, each person was standing on uh, a block. You know, I had a little kid, a teenager, an adult. And um, on the one, each of them were standing on 
the block, you know, the adult and the teenager were still able to see over the fence. Um, so that's equality, right? Each person has one block. But, but that's not true equality. True equality is making everybody be able to see over the fence, right? So you take the two blocks away from, from the other two people and give it to the kid who's now on three blocks. All people are seeing over the fence. That's true equality. You know, you might have one side might have sacrifice something. Right. You know, and I really should have printed it out and hung it up in my office, but, you know, I'm such a goldfish (laughs) sometimes. um, So, you know, yeah, they they give us, they give us a block, but, you know, we we still can't see over the fence, you know, and how Mm -hmm. can you, when people are facing life in jail or 25 years, or even three years, right? Even three years in a prison right. um, is it, it, just, just horrible. And, and we don't... We're, uh, the way that the prosecution could approach things and the way the defense could approach things uh, are not equal, you know? And I was just disillusioned by that. And, and it's like, you know, um, if you have... Before trial, you know, say the attorney brings some to to the prosecutor, and and uh, you know, it's pretty much, hey man, we, you know, we got you on this. They'll bring something else up. Well, if that's the case, then we're going to also charge them with this, this, and this, and so now it goes uh-huh. up to twenty five. You know, it, it just it's it's not fair. You know, so uh-huh. I, I was seeing all that. Well, I knew it existed, but I was seeing all that and how it was playing out and how it's affecting the families and how it's affecting, uh, you know, the defendant and, uh, it just, just more disillusionment, you know? So that's, that's what was, uh, right on the forefront of my mind. So that's why I, I guess that was like my, uh, my outlet, you know, of what the hell, <laughs> Well, I think what you wrote, uh, one of the things you wrote in your paper, Mark, uh, which I think is very instructive, is you said the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to a fair trial, but does not guarantee the process leading up to the trial will be fair. And exactly. I think that's, that, that kind of capsulizes what you're just saying, because what, what the public sees is maybe the trial, the trial process. Right. They don't see all the the negotiations and the back and forth and the uh, not receiving, like the defense not receiving all the discovery. Maybe there's something exculpatory that doesn't get handed over ever or maybe not until the last minute or last second or, right. you know, the middle of right. trial. <laughs> you know, it's those kind of things. Exactly. Or, or even yeah. I, I had a case one time where the whole probable cause for putting this guy for, for arresting this, this one, one person, uh, was in the report, one of the detectives said, uh, I noticed, uh, on Instagram, this particular person was friends with this officer. Um, so I called the officer in and, and he, he positively identified, you know, the person, uh, you know, the suspect as, you know, so-and-so, um, or so-and-so as, as the person matching the description in this, you know, blurry surveillance photograph. You know, it was just really just a fat guy with a beard. That's all you could tell. And apparently this patrolman was like, yeah, yeah, that's so-and-so. Um, well, hmm. 
I called the, the officer, you know, um, uh, that's what we do. He's a witness to me. He's not an officer. You know, I don't have to call his sergeant and ask him for permission. He's a witness. Uh, I give him a call and, uh, I say, uh, yeah, we're, we're just looking to confirm that, that you positively identify. Like, I, I never said it was him. I said it looked like him. It, it, it might not be him, but the way the report was written was the officer was 100% sure. And it sounded to me like he was, you know, 4951 on the phone, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so it's, it's just stuff like that, the way they, they word their reports and, and all that. So on paper, it looks great, but, um, and, you know, I tried to call back that officer and <laughs> needless to say, he never answered his phone again. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, they caught wind of it and, uh, you know, that, that guy, we got another detention hearing, uh, which is unheard of. And, and then, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, let out on bail. So interesting. So why why do you say that the burden of proof is lowered? Because the the prosecution in leading up to trial really isn't proving anything, right? Like um, if if that were the so. Whenever they come into, um, uh, whenever it comes into to plea bargaining and stuff, so it's like in court they have to go beyond a reasonable doubt, right? In criminal matters, like beyond a reasonable doubt, this, this person committed. They don't have that in a lot of cases, you know. All they have is the person knows whether they did it or didn't do it, um, and and they they really don't have any evidence tying the person to the scene. Like, say they they have this blurry surveillance footage uh, still that's, you know, zoomed in 20 times. You can't get any distinguishing features. Um, that's all they have. That's all they have tying this person to the scene. And they're telling him, hey, man, uh, for this shooting, you can get 25 years. Why don't you take 10? That's not beyond a reasonable doubt. That's one little blurry photograph is not, does not prove that that guy was there beyond a reasonable doubt. You have no gun and you have nothing placing him at the scene. You don't have any cell phone data that says he's there. You just have this picture, you know, that's, that's like not even based on a preponderance of the evidence, you know, like, so the burden of proof is lowered at that point And to try to, get people to take plea deals so they don't have to go to trial, you know? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, and it kind of ties in to something else you said in your article to Mark, where you said you were surprised to learn that a lot of criminal defense attorneys do not look at the evidence. They don't go in and review the evidence. They accept it as it's provided. And right. that's, that's very discouraging. You know, because uh, there's a lot of times that that if you go look at that evidence, there is something there that um, could be exculpatory. It could be a different viewpoint. There's, there's a lot that could be taken into account if you actually see the evidence. You know, it's it's a well, different. It's like reading about a crime scene and going and looking at it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. And 
Yes, and, and I, ha- I have a good story about looking for the evidence, if you're looking at the evidence. Do we have time for that? Or? Yeah, tell us. Tell us about that. So uh, this person was charged with, um, you know, p- possession of uh, assault rifles and, uh, you know, it was a marijuana case uh, growing in, in his yard, right? Um, and uh, without getting too nitty-gritty into the details of the case, he has a, a long history with law enforcement, right? Um, they don't get along. So uh, we just go uh, and look at the evidence, right? So they're, they're saying that they found these two. There, there was problems with the consensus search and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but these two, they say they, they found these two assault rifles uh, in his house. He's saying, those aren't mine. I've never seen them before, right? So I'm not saying that the cops put them there at all. That's, that's not what I'm saying. It's, you know, uh, if this person were set up by somebody he knows, uh, they could have easily put the guns there. You know, so mm-hmm. I'm looking at these guns, these two uh, AR-15s, or uh, they, they're what, what's in New Jersey called a ghost gun, right? So um, and they're made from manufactured from all different parts, uh, but these particular ones look like they were manufactured from a gunsmith because they had uh, a number etched in them, and if a gunsmith makes it, they can number it however they want, right? Uh, there's no national standard for, for that. So um, that that was easily explainable. They said he etched a, uh, the number on it himself uh, to try to make it look like a, a registered firearm. But um, it's very plausible that a gunsmith made it and put his own number in there. Uh, but I'm looking at him more because I really wanted to see the serial number on this thing. And I'm like, well, my guy's left-handed. And the uh, discharge, the bullets discharge on the right side of both of these firearms. So if he holds it up to his, you know, if, he, if he's shooting left-handed, the bullets are going to be, the shells are going to be hitting him in the face as he's shooting him. Why would he contract somebody to manufacture a gun for him or, or make a ghost gun or whatever it is when it's fully customizable, why wouldn't you just put the discharge port on the, on the opposite side? Like, it's easily done. Um, you Interesting. Know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't make sense to me. So had I not went and looked at the evidence and, and taken the pictures, that never would have that. led to the reasonable doubt about those guns being hit, you know? And he was a... This guy was like... 50s or 60s, so when he was in his early 20s, he was a uh, like a part-time officer, and you know, a picture exists of him in his uniform with a gun on his left-hand side, you know, so he's obviously left-handed, he obviously shoots left-handed, why, why are the bullets discharging at his face? You know, so... Well, you know, I have a story similar uh, to that, a little different, but uh, we went. I went with an attorney to look at evidence one time, and uh, the gun that was described in the police report, which was an unusual gun, it was a Tokarov, was a Russian pistol. It was a different. It was a different gun that was in evidence. Oh wow! Well, I can tell you that caused a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, I bet. 
<laughs> for sure. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. that was litigated for months, and and as it turned out, the way we handled that is we just subpoenaed all the officers on two different cases and hadn't come to testify, and the evidence tech wasn't available the day the rest of them testified, so he didn't know what they said, and he his mm. comment was. Well, yeah, uh, I was told to change the report. Uh, gosh, I do it all the time. They call me and tell me to do it all the time. <laughs> so, that wow. was kind of a, a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, I bet. Um, and a big deal for a lot of other people now, too, because everything that that person has touched is now called into question, you know? Exactly right. I don't think he's with the department any longer, either. Uh, not, not a surprise, but... Nor is the inspector from the DA's office <laughs> there any longer. <laughs> um, yeah, but but yes, and that that kind of thing goes on all the time because you know it's everybody has their everybody wants to keep their job. Everybody wants to do a good job, and investigators right. want to close their cases, and prosecutors want to get you know they want to get convictions. So everybody has their area of of focus that uh, applies directly to the job they have. Right. So it makes sense. We're all human. You know, imagine a world where your life as an officer or or, uh, a prosecutor or associate prosecutor uh, didn't revolve around convictions or charges or, you know, uh, guilty, not guilty, Mm -hmm. and... It was just based on work performance. You know, one, one of the guys I worked for in, in, in the insurance thing, um, he was a, the SIU manager. He did, you know, 30 years as a cop. He did uh, 20 years with, like, Liberty Mutual. And this was, like, his, like, keep me busy kind of thing. And he just had so much experience. And the, and the way he would rate his investigators wasn't on whether the, whether they uncovered the, the greatest piece of evidence or, uh, you know, if the insurance company did, denied the claim. What held the most weight was, did you, as an investigator, have an impact on this case? And, and that was the largest portion of, of his evaluation, you know? And if that happened in the, in the prosecutor's office, you know, convictions almost, will, you know, are immaterial to your job performance. You know, so, so people mm-hmm. aren't then put in a position of, oh, shit, you know, oh, sorry. Uh, if I don't get this conviction, um, you know, my, uh, I'm not going to get this next promotion or whatever. It's, did your actions directly impact the case in a positive way? And if your actions are, you know what, I don't, this blurry photograph really isn't going to be enough for me to hold this guy or take it to trial, that's that's why uh, I dropped the charges on this one. You know what? That was a good decision. You know, here's right. the, here's a good right. performance review. You know, if it were all based on performance uh, of your skill as a prosecutor or skill as an investigator, a lot of these problems would go away. You wouldn't have people putting uh, Russian handguns into evidence and saying it somehow. You know. Well, and of course, we know that um, the prosecutors' evaluations and their job assignments 
depend on their convictions. And if they have too many acquittals or too many hung juries, then they're going to maybe sent out to another department that they don't like working for. So we know that happens. Right. The same thing happens with investigators and within police departments. So, yeah, you know, and, you know sure. and, and I guess we look at, we, we're going to have to close here, but so I'll leave with this message that, uh, that I hear Brandon Perrin say often the, uh, Oh, he's an awesome guy. About criminal defense, yeah, uh, that we're, we're defending, as a criminal defense investigator, we're defending the Sixth Amendment, and I think that's what it boils yeah. down to. That is the Sixth yeah. Amendment of the Constitution, and that's where we ought to be. 100%. Mark, thanks for being on the show today. Interesting conversation. Thank you so much, and I recommend to the me. rest of you. You're welcome. I rest the rest of you to read Mark's uh, paper in the uh, the Legal Investigator um, magazine for NALI, National Association of Legal Investigators. CLI white paper lowering the burden of proof, acts of malice, or other base motives. Thanks, Mark. And for the rest of you, thank you. Classified. I'm Francie Kaler, and thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 